Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The signs are improving that England's current lockdown could be its last. But Boris Johnson has said he won't move too quickly unless the data supports the easing measures. We must be both optimistic but also patient because we want this lockdown to be the last and we want progress to be cautious but also irreversible. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the latest progress on the coronavirus vaccination programme as millions more Britons receive their jabs and the Prime Minister is set to decide how and when to ease the tough social distancing measures. Health editor Sarah Neville and political reporter Jasmine Cameron Schleshi will analyse. And later, we'll be looking at the surprise appointment of a new Brexit minister to oversee future UK-EU relations. After a Whitehall bun fight, Lord David Frost has found himself a perch in the cabinet. But should Michael Gove be worried? Political editor George Parker and chief political columnist Robert Shrimsley will give us their views. Sarah and Jasmine, welcome back to the podcast and let's move straight into the main topic of the week. Boris Johnson received some great slabs of data on his desk this week, which attempted to answer the big question facing the country. Do COVID-19 vaccinations work? We do know they cut serious illness, but do they cut transmission of the virus? That answer is key to the question of when lockdown will finally be eased. The Prime Minister is spending the weekend deciding a roadmap for the next few months, but it's already clear he's going to act cautiously and, unlike many of his decisions in 2020, will not rush into easing measures too quickly. His approach was backed up by Chris Whitty, England's chief medical officer. The risk will gradually go down, so it won't suddenly move from a uh, you're having to do everything to nothing. This is going to be gradually, little by little, we will de-risk it. Clearly, the hope is we get to a point where the minimum effort is used by things like uh, any kind of social distancing. Sarah, let's begin with an overview of the vaccination programme and how it's going. We hit that big target of 15 million jabs to the top four most vulnerable groups, and it's now rolling out to all those over 60 in an effort to hit 17 million more people. What is the government's next target? The vaccination rollout in the UK is going astonishingly well, particularly in contrast to some of the other big pandemic grand projects like the Test and Trace programme, where the second best performer amongst large countries after Israel. And as of last night, we've vaccinated 16 and a half million people and we're getting incredibly high take up, particularly in the older age groups in one or two of the 
age cohorts. I think it's even reached 99%. And I think part of the reason for that is that the NHS has been in charge of the rollout. And the NHS, of course, in the UK is an immensely trusted brand, if you like. And I think it's really been an advantage for the programme that it hasn't relied on the kind of outsourcing to private companies that affected people's response, for example, to test and trace. I think one of the reasons that compliance with isolation has not been as good as it might have been is people have been getting calls from outsourced contact centres, whereas here it's the NHS that's been inviting you in for your jab And the speed at which it's been done is astonishingly high when you think the first jab happened on December the 8th, and we're only now at the 19th of February, and as I say, 16.5 million people already covered with that protection. And Jasmine, so the next target for the government is to get through all the over 50s and those clinically vulnerable. And we know that the top group of vaccinations, the one to four priorities, was all about reducing deaths. And the government estimated that once they'd been vaccinated, that would cut 88% of deaths from COVID-19. But the next category is all about reducing pressure on the NHS. And the government seems to have put quite a distant date on this because the FT did some number crunching this week. And we figured out that if the vaccine pace continues at its current rate. It should be done by the end of March. But instead, the government's now saying to the end of April. What's going on here? Yes, as Sarah said, the vaccine rollout has been relatively successful, especially this week. It's been a good news week for the government on that front. But they're really trying to temper expectations. There may be a new variant. We still don't know the impact of vaccines on transmission. So there is this overwhelming sense that, yes, we may have vaccines, but our path out of lockdown won't necessarily be as straightforward. The government also has to contend with the issue that even if everybody is offered a vaccine by the end of autumn, as is the current plans, not everyone is going to necessarily take the vaccine. We've seen growing concerns surrounding vaccine uptake among ethnic minorities, among social care workers, among those with disabilities, for example. And we heard earlier this week, Dame Angela McLean warning that even with a vaccine, we won't necessarily reach herd immunity. And there's still a risk of another wave among the unvaccinated. So the government is just overall trying to take a more cautious approach, because in the past, it's definitely been accused of over-promising and under-delivering. But this more cautious approach by Johnson has really put him at a collision course with many of his Tory backbenchers. So last week, we saw that around more than 60 MPs from the COVID recovery group wrote a letter to the Prime Minister arguing that if all nine priority groups are vaccinated as planned by the end of April, then there's really no justification for coronavirus restrictions to continue. They also argued for all schools and all pupils to return by March the 8th. And they also called for the reopening of pubs and restaurants. And so you have Tory backbenchers really pushing the Prime Minister to provide firm dates and firm certainty to the public. Now, Sarah, when you look at this sort of negativity, it's starting to fly a little bit in the face of evidence that there was a front page on the Daily Telegraph this week that revealed some of the details of this big, important Public Health England study, which is looking at what effect the vaccinations have on transmission of COVID-19, because that's really going to dictate how quickly you can open things up once the vaccine is rolled out to the most vulnerable groups, then also to the adult population. What does that do to the virus passing around? And the initial indication from Public Health England, but also some data that's come from Israel as well, suggests that vaccination is cutting it 
by a significant measure. And that should suggest we could ease lockdown at a relatively rapid rate. The really crucial thing, I think, about this Public Health England data is that it appears to suggest that transmission is very, very heavily cut by about two thirds. And this, of course, is the question mark that we've all had for the last few months, as well as stopping the vaccinated individual suffering severe illness or hopefully any illness, would they cease to become infectious to others? And this PHE data seems to suggest a very big reduction in that infectiousness. In a way, it's not surprising. The COVID vaccine would have been a very unusual vaccine if it didn't stop that kind of transmission. But nevertheless, this is really important confirmation. And as you say, it's perhaps going to make the political management job a little harder because it does suggest that this vaccine is genuinely very exciting in terms of its ability to restore us all to normal pre-pandemic life within the next few months, given that the word is that they'll now have everybody in the population by the autumn. So we should be reaching that elusive herd immunity towards the end of the year, possibly even, shall we say, October. Now, let's turn to this question of how the lockdown is going to be eased and what the plan will look like. As we said, Boris Johnson will be receiving lots of data looking at the effectiveness of the vaccine, also looking, of course, at infections, deaths, hospital admissions, and the data is going the right direction. Of course, the challenge for the prime minister is separating out what is the vaccination and what is lockdown. But we do have a bit of a sense, Jasmine, about how this is going to look. We know that schools are due to go back on March the 8th. But there still seems to be a bit of debate in government about will it just be primary schools, key stage one and two to begin with, or whether it's all pupils. And then we think universities are likely to come after that. Yes. So the PM has said that at least some pupils will be returning to school from March the 8th. Gavin Williamson and the PM are under immense pressure to ensure that returning pupils to schools actually goes as smoothly as possible, especially after a series of U-turns, most notably at the beginning of the year, where we saw pupils going in for one day only to be told that they would be remote working. And so there's a lot of speculation surrounding what a reopening will look like. It will likely involve some form of mass testing. Before it was announced that we would return to remote learning in schools, the initial plan in January was for mass testing in schools to enable schools to sort of catch and contain any outbreaks. There are lots of logistical questions surrounding that, you know, how many times people would have to be tested, where they would get tested at home or in school. But that's likely to be one element of it. There's also transmission and infection levels in schools and questions surrounding whether the government will adopt a staggered approach. So we know the devolved nations have all announced that the youngest pupils will be returning first. And so there's lots of questions surrounding whether the government will adopt a similar policy. So Sarah, yes, it is going to be about a staggered approach. But the thing the government is very keen to sort of say is the hospitality industry, which I think people have a lot of focus on just for some kind of variety and something to look forward to. That's going to be much later. And the indications we've seen is the government seems to have learned the lessons of the past and is focusing on outdoor socialising. So it's sort of baffling when you look back at all the easing last year with Eat Out to help out. There wasn't actually a focus on keeping people outdoors because, yes, we'll have better weather this spring, but also it really helps keep the transmission lower. So what kind of timetable do you think that might work to? Well, clearly the hospitality industry is a powerful voice and has been lobbying incredibly hard. So they will be looking to come in, you know, not 
too long after schools. One of the things I've been thinking about this week is the absolute importance that the government is increasingly putting on testing, not just in the school setting, but Seb, you had an excellent story this week about how this could be the pathway back to theatres and cinemas reopening, because of course that's another huge industry and an immensely successful British export industry in terms of theatre. You know, we send many shows overseas. They have suffered bitterly and testing is obviously being seen as one of the ways to revitalise that industry. The problem, as I see it, is that there's big question marks over the accuracy of this kind of testing. And I saw a senior scientist issuing very apocalyptic warnings this week about the dire dangers of relying on a lateral flow test as a proof of somebody being fit and able to go into a theatre full of hundreds of people and that this could risk becoming an ultimate super spreader event. So there are huge pitfalls ahead, I think, as the government plans this reopening. And finally, Jasmine, just to come back to this question about how the decision is going to be made. So we know that Boris Johnson will be influenced by Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty and the Chief Scientific Officer Patrick Valence, and they will be, I think, pushing caution. But then, of course, on the other hand, you will have the economic voices, people like Rishi Sunak, Kwasi Kwarteng, the business secretary, pushing him to get the economy going again, because, of course, we've got the budget coming, which is going to be a bit of a holding pattern. But I think one thing that is striking is how much the Tory politics have moved on compared to last year on this, because whenever we were looking at lockdown one, and lockdown too. There was always this pull from people within the cabinet, like the Chancellor, to get things open up again because of the cost of keeping everybody locked up at home. That's really dampened down. And as you said earlier, there are still plenty of Tory libertarian rebels who are not happy, but it doesn't feel as if there's that big push to get things going and opening as soon as possible. Instead, people want the certainty and they want this to be the last lockdown. Yeah, I think that's completely fair. But I think there is a general sense that the cautious approach is the better approach. And what we have seen is, you know, sometimes you'll see a handful of Conservative MPs gearing their efforts towards specific issues, say, for example, on the reopening of schools. But generally speaking, there is a consensus that this cautious approach is is more favourable. Looking into the long term, I think the government is conscious that as it makes these decisions on unlocking, there are questions surrounding how it manages the virus in the long term. So at one point, it's going to have to make a decision as to what level of risk and what level of infections we as a society are comfortable with. So even ministers seem a bit conflicted on this issue. So I think it was Hancock that said that the virus could be treated like a flu. Now, we don't self-isolate and social distance because of the bad flu season. We vaccinate the most vulnerable and society functions as normal. But then when this idea was put to Boris Johnson earlier this week, he argued that it's a bad idea to have a large amount of virus circulating because that would risk new variants being developed and it could risk the virus spreading among older people. The government is really going to have to decide what the long-term goal is. Should we be living with coronavirus and managing it like the flu, but accepting that maybe five or 10,000 people sadly die each year? Or is the government intention to get cases as close to zero as possible? Jasmine and Sarah, thank you very much. It's been a rather busy year so far for Lord David Frost the peer and close ally of Boris Johnson. He has been chief Brexit negotiator, designated national security advisor, designated international relations advisor, and now a minister and full member of his cabinet. After a fair bit of Whitehorse squabbling, 
Frost is now in charge of overseeing the UK-EU trade deal and will be the Prime Minister's chief point man with Brussels. But in a recent select committee hearing, Frost admitted that relations between the two sides could certainly be better. I mean, I think it's been more than bumpy, uh, to be honest, in the last six weeks. I think it's been problematic. Uh, I hope we'll get over this. Uh, It is going to require a a different spirit, probably, uh, from the EU, but I'm sure we are going to see that. George Parker, welcome back to the pod. Let's begin with who is David Frost? I can imagine most of our listeners won't have heard of him, but he's rapidly becoming one of the most influential and intriguing figures in the Johnson government. Well, he's assumed an incredible amount of power for an unelected official. Essentially, his new job involves running the UK's relationship, not just with the EU, but coordinating relationships with the 27 member states, including France and Germany. So it's a huge job. And you ask yourself, what's his qualification for this? Well, he was a former foreign office official. He felt his career didn't really flourish as much as it should have done in the foreign office. It peaked when he was the ambassador to Denmark. And then he left the Foreign Service and went off to become a lobbyist for the Scotch Whiskey Association, one of Britain's biggest export industries, of course, where David Frost was a big advocate for the benefits of the European Union single market and was paid to lobby on behalf of the Scotch Whiskey Association to try and keep Britain inside the European Union. At some point along the way, he's undergone a conversion of his views on the EU, and he's absolutist on this point, that sovereignty is something which is not just important from a political point of view, but he also believes it's economically important. So under David Frost, the British negotiation of trade deal, which puts sovereignty very much ahead of economic interests and market access. And in that respect, he's very much a fellow traveller with Boris Johnson, who sees him as reliable, very hardworking, conscientious, and will basically stick to the hard Brexit view that Boris Johnson's always espoused. So Robert Shrimsley, as George said, a fellow traveller on Brexit is very much the best way to see David Frost. But he's mostly been a behind-the-scenes figure to now working as a special advisor. But last summer it was announced he was going to be made a peer and be appointed National Security Advisor, which is a very important official role for the Prime Minister. That didn't quite come off. And there was a bit of a ruckus this week. He's now ended up becoming a minister. He's become a Minister of State in the Cabinet Office, but quite the most influential Minister of State we've seen. Remember, that's one rank below Cabinet, but he is going to be a member of the Cabinet, and he's going to assume a great deal of importance. And it was very puzzling the way the choreography of this, because only a couple of days earlier it had been announced that Michael Gove was going to take the chair of this body called the EU-UK Partnership Council, which was going to oversee all continuing issues around the trade agreement about the Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland Protocol. And two days later, it's then said, no, actually, it's going to be David Frost. So that obviously points to the fact that there was quite a lot of shenanigans going on behind the scenes. But he is going to be a figure of substantial clout. He carries the prime minister's ear. He's also seen, you know, as a real true believer. And one of the striking things about Brexit is, as this process has gone on, the number of people who are trusted as true believers has diminished. And we shouldn't forget that Michael Gove stood there with Boris Johnson as one of the key figures arguing for Brexit, but he is decreasingly trusted by Brexit hardliners, partly because he was ready to support Theresa May's deal, because he pushed her withdrawal agreement, and because he's been ready to compromise occasionally. And that's tarnished him in some people's eyes. I think it's also the case that he was being looked at as someone who was looking at a more emollient approach to dealing with problems as they came forward with the EU. Whereas with David Frost, you're going to have someone who is very hardline. I think he could be a very substantial figure in this government, the only caveat being that there's a lot of turf wars potentially available to him, not least with the Foreign Office as we move forward. 
Well, you mentioned Michael Gove there, Robert, and there's a feeling that his nose has been knocked slightly out of joint by Lord Foss's appointment. But Gove himself also admits there's been some teething issues with that trade deal. This is what he told a select committee recently. We all know that uh, uh, when an aeroplane takes off, uh, that's the point when you sometimes get uh, uh, that uh, increased level of turbulence. But then eventually you reach a cruising altitude um, uh, and the crew tell you to take your seatbelts off uh, enjoy a gin and tonic and some peanuts. Um, uh, we're not at the gin and tonic and peanut stage yet, but I'm confident we will be. Well, George, with that metaphor there from Michael Gove, how do you think David Frost is going to affect this? Is he going to take us to the gin and tonic and peanut stage, or are we going to still be in turbulence with him overseeing this for some time? Well, I think to, to continue that analogy, I think David Frost is more likely to preside over a period of more turbulence, whereas Michael Gove has been very effective in trying to smooth out some of the problems that have arisen from the Brexit deal. He's been working throughout this process on the Northern Ireland protocol end of the discussion in association with Maros Sefcovic, who's the vice president of the European Commission. And they've been sitting on something called the Joint Committee, which has overseen the Northern Ireland protocol. And in the run-up to the deal and throughout the last year or two, those two people have worked incredibly closely together. They got on well. And when the big row erupted a few weeks back, when the European Commission briefly and disastrously flirted with the idea of recreating a border on the island of Ireland with relation to vaccines, it was quite interesting how quickly Michael Gove and Marosevkovic got together over a Deliveroo dinner of steak and potatoes to try and calm things down. And that row has died down a bit. Now, it's interesting that you hear allies of David Frost saying, aha, this shows that Michael Gove is actually a bit soft on all this stuff and that Michael Gove should have used the European Commission's discomfort over this self-inflicted error to push for a much greater renegotiation of the Northern Ireland Protocol, basically to remove whatever the most vexatious friction points are at the border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. They feel he didn't really push home the political advantage. Now, I think with David Frost in control of this, and indeed EU relations generally, I think we're going to see a more abrasive manner and I think further eruptions over the next few months. And Robert, one thing that's striking about this, of course, is that Lord Frost is going to be based out of the Cabinet Office, not the Foreign Office. And of course, the Foreign Office is the Whitehall Ministry that normally oversees all international relations for the UK. But Brexit has sort of broken that up a bit. And it's quite remarkable just how much power the Cabinet Office now has. It's got three ministers in the Cabinet now. It's got Michael Gove, Alok Sharma, who's overseeing the COP26 climate change, and now Lord Frost as well. And although it was strongly denied by colleagues of Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary this week, there's been quite a lot of suggestions that he's not particularly happy about this power grab and appointment either. Yeah, I mean, I think there are two sides to this situation. There's no question about how fundamental the Cabinet Office has become for the moment. There is absolutely going to be tension that's going to continue between the Cabinet Office and the Foreign Office, because the Cabinet Office is, in a sense, overseeing relations with the European Union, whereas the Foreign Office still has relations with individual capitals and individual countries. On the other hand, I think there were quite a lot of people who were getting very concerned that we have such a major strategic issue in our relationship with Europe, and nobody appeared to have any actual responsibility for it. Michael Gove had a chunk in the Cabinet Office. The Foreign Office had its traditional role. You could have argued that the Department for International Trade ought to have had a role, though it absolutely didn't. And Liz Truss, the Secretary of State for International Trade, even refused to answer questions on European Union issues in the House of Commons. So there is actually a case for saying 
we do for a bit at least need a ministry for dealing with Europe. And if the cabinet office is that ministry, it may not be a bad thing. Many policy advisors and former officials have argued that something like this is needed, but it absolutely will create tensions. The other issue, of course, is that the man most responsible for handling relationship is a peer. So he will not be able to answer questions in the House of Commons. And I think that will raise also significant accountability issues as people will start to wonder, well, who can we talk to when we press the issues of our constituencies, our businesses that are having problems or whatever it is? Who can we talk to in the Commons? And where is the accountability there? Just to pick up Robert's point on the Cabinet Office, I mean, it is becoming a highly powerful body at the heart of government. It's a curious situation in the UK, as you know, that Number 10 Downing Street is itself a very small operation. And traditionally, prime ministers have lent on the cabinet office next door, physically next door, to see through the will of the prime minister. Now, that can create tensions if the person running the cabinet office, in this case, Michael Gove, is not entirely trusted by the prime minister of the day. That doesn't have to be the case, though, of course, because when we think about Theresa May, for example, she would put in a trusted figure like David Liddington or Damien Green in the cabinet office to do her work for her. It does feel slightly unstable at the moment with Michael Gove and Boris Johnson eyeing at each other slightly warily. But it doesn't mean that in the end, Boris Johnson couldn't put someone into that department who he trusts, which would be seen as a way of him exerting more control from the centre over the whole government. Well, that brings us on to the final question about all this, which is a reshuffle. And we love talking about cabinet reshuffles, who's up, who's down, and when it might happen. There's been a sense for some time that there does need to be changes at the top of the Johnson government. I think nobody in Westminster thinks Gavin Williamson, the education secretary, will be in his post for much longer. There's also a sense that Matt Hancock, the health secretary, may need a bit of a break after having seen a year of the coronavirus pandemic. It's been a very tough job, I think, for any minister. And then it comes back this question of Michael Gove as well. And Robert, it feels as if the reshuffle is probably going to come in the summer because the government doesn't want to do it when we're still in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic. It wants to be when COVID's in the rearview mirror, according to some people in the government I spoke to. And it wants it to be far enough away from the local elections in May that it doesn't look like a panic. So it feels as if maybe late June, July time, we could see a decent shakeup of the government. Well, it's long been my view that it would come in the summer because the British political landscape may look very different in the summer. You know, with luck, the country and the economy will have reopened. We will know where things stand in terms of Scotland and the assumption that the SNP is going to win the Holyrood election, which throws us into a new stage of that question. So that feels like the right time to put a different team in place. One of the interesting footnotes to the Gove Frost affair was it was announced that Michael Gove was taken charge of a committee to look at reform of public services. And I think that would, to some extent, make a lot of sense because it's going to become one of the big issues of the next couple of years. We know that there's a plan to reform the health service. We know there are plans to shake up education. And it's the kind of thing that Michael Gove likes and, and has shown a talent for, whether one agrees with what he does. So I think you could easily see him becoming a big figure, masterminding the approach to public services. Although, on the other hand, you could easily make an argument saying he becomes a big figure trying to defend the union. But I think we will see a shake-up and he will be part of that process. And it will be to get a grip on the issues that the government faces in the next couple of years. Yes, George, if you speak to a lot of Tory wags, they say that Michael Gove could go over to the health department. There's also some whispers he could maybe go back to education, where he was there as a reforming minister under David Cameron. But it's clear Michael Gove is still going to be a pretty influential figure. Who else should we be watching out for in this reshuffle, even if it is some time away? 
the problem with Michael Gove is a, he's a brilliant administrator and a very visionary Secretary of State, one of the most effective ones I've covered in my time in the lobby. But he's also incredibly unpopular with the public. And so sticking him into the health department or back at education would open up the kind of problems that David Cameron grappled with. I suppose the other people we should mention are two of the holders of the great offices of state, so-called. One is Dominic Raab, who seems to me to be doing a perfectly decent job. Don't forget, he is the first Secretary of State, effectively the Deputy Prime Minister, as you recall, when Boris Johnson became very ill, he took over. But nevertheless, doesn't seem to be brought into the inner circle of things. And the whole Frost affair, again, was another sign of the Foreign Office's role being slightly denuded or possibly majorly denuded by David Frost's role running European Union policy. And then the other one is the question about Priti Patel, who may be massively popular with the Conservative grassroots, but Boris Johnson wasn't particularly happy with the way she handled the migrant issue last summer. And she's obviously not trusted to go out and front the government's message. You know, we barely see her in broadcast studios. So those two, I think, are ones to watch as well. Gavin Williamson, you mentioned, I think would be quite remarkable if he doesn't get the chop. One person I think I would probably just tip for possible promotion, or two people. One would be Oliver Dowden, who seems to have done a pretty good job at the Department of Culture. And also a wild card here, Grant Shapps, who I think is one of the few ministers who's had a pretty good crisis. So those are two possibilities to watch. I think I'd also add to that list Sajid Javid, who I think there's a clear desire to bring back into government. The only question is whether there's a role big enough for him. But I think he's also one to keep our eyes on. Well, I suppose Sajid Javid could be put into the cabinet office, going back to the conversation we had earlier, to replace Michael Gove and someone that Boris Johnson would fully trust. Well, this is always the challenge with reshuffles, is finding enough holes for enough people and the people who are willing to take roles at the seniority that is offered to them. But I think we'll have plenty more reshuffle chat before we actually get to the point. And who knows, it may even happen later this year. George and Robert, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you enjoyed the podcast, then we please do ask you to subscribe. You know where to find us through all the usual channels for Apple, Spotify, Google, and on your smart speaker. You can get the episodes as soon as they're released. And please do leave us a positive rating or a nice comment if you've enjoyed it. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dada and Josh Dillamere. The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor Liam Nolan. Until next week, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.